Hello everyone, welcome to the Human Potential Series Authentic Awakened Action, where we explore the possibilities for taking purposeful action amidst the challenges we face in an increasingly complex world. We talk with trailblazers and thought leaders walking the talk, inspiring change on our planet. I'm your host Pippa Hayes and I'm part of the Earthbeat Fano or family. Earthbeat is an annual festival that takes place in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with the kaupapa, or purpose, to create a platform for transformation and celebration that inspires and empowers new ways of living in this world. Will Sue is a Los Angeles-based psychiatrist, speaker, writer, and educator. In his practice, he uses his skills and experience to help people engage their inner healer, to heal themselves with a goal to eventually live without the need for psychotherapy and medication. To begin our session, I'm going to share a short karakia, or traditional prayer from the Māori, the indigenous people of Aotearoa, New Zealand, to bring us together and give intention to our kōrero or talk today. Tūe ki runga, tūe ki raro, tūe ki roto, tūe ki wao, karongo te ao, karongo te po. Homie, huie, taikie. Unite above, unite below, unite without, unite within. Listen to the night, listen to the world. Now we come together as one. Earthbeat is an organization that believes in the importance of human connection to place. So, with these words, we want to honor the land of Aotearoa that Earthbeat was born on, Te Reo Māori, the language that evolved with this land and its indigenous people and extend this honouring out to all parts of this earth that endlessly support our human existence and the caretakers or guardians of all those places. Beautiful. Um, thank you. Thank you for being part of that. So welcome, Will. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So I thought we'd dive in by talking about trauma and healing. So they're both massive buzzwords in the spiritual and self-help communities and there may be accuracy in some of these conversations that are being had in these circles. But as someone who has the credentials to actually talk about the meaning of these words, I wonder if you could tell us exactly what trauma is to begin with and how past trauma may be impacting our lives in the present, and then we can open the conversation up around healing and what that means as well. Sure. Um, the first thing that caught my attention, though, is you're, you're saying that because of my credentials. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, important to me is, is, is that in a way, like I realized as I was doing work with my clients, this was probably even as, as much as a year ago, where you know I, I sometimes chant with my clients, I do meditation, I play like, there's this like instrument called a Shruti. And, and I'm saying that because I, I think something like, I imagine 90 plus percent of what I do in the room with someone was not anything that I learned in my education. And so you know, I, I, I think the deepest roots of healing are, are sort of innate in each of us. So, so even though I'll give you a definition for trauma, I will say that I don't think it takes someone with credentials to, to really understand what, what trauma is. Um, I, do, I do also honor though in our, our current Western world that, that, that you know, has put academia on a pedestal that, that, that some of this is, is yeah, controversial. So, um, but anyways, that, that's to say that my favorite definition of trauma that I've ever heard that I felt was most encompassing is, the, is trauma is anything that separates us from our authentic self, right? I think generally people think of trauma as, you know, physical or sexual abuse or violence and war, which, which are certainly traumas. But, you know, I think things like that are much more subtle, like neglect, um, withdrawal of love, um, you know, having a parent who is uh, a substance user or an alcoholic who cannot be mirroring or, or empathic towards a child while they're growing up, right? These are as traumatic. You know, I think even, you know, it's interesting as with some of the more like, like wealthy or, or celebrity clients that I work with, you know, many of these people were raised by nannies, you know, and there's some wonderful nannies out there, but there's some 
you know, some of these, uh, you know, folks have never, you know, did not spend much time with their parents growing up, they were sent off to boarding school, etc. So that is all to say that, that, again, I think trauma for me is anything that that separates us from love. And um, so yeah, I, it, did you want me to get into like what that what then healing means? Or what it, or do you want to? Yeah, well, I just wanted to touch on um, what you brought up initially around the credentials and how important they are. Because I've been reading recently some criticism of the, you know, of spiritual communities really, I guess, trying to work with what is blocking them from their authentic self, which I feel is so important and so vital as we're um, moving through really challenging times that are rife with disconnection. Yeah, so I'm curious also to talk a little bit more about what in your experience with the credentials, but also working with other modalities that perhaps you don't have um, certifications for, where you see that line for people, um, what you think is okay, what's safe to get into, and where people need to be cautious in terms of delving into their psyches and, and looking at traumas and um, things that maybe they may see as blocking them from, from life? Sure. Um... You know, I, I tend to think of, of sort of like levels of both so kind of separate pockets, but related of, of things to heal or that can be impacted by trauma um, in three categories. Um, I think of mind, body, spirit, right? And when we hear that thrown around a lot in, in the spiritual community, but I think, you know, that, you know, although, you know, I don't know, my, just quickly, my spiritual beliefs are that we come from some from some place of oneness and unity, and that we will go to some place of oneness and unity. And there, this human experience is is sort of chosen to to give us the perception of disunity in in in, in as many complex, innumerable ways as possible, whether it's material, the body separation, and and to really find the joy in reconnecting. So just, just that's my spiritual beliefs in a nutshell. So I, but you know, matter is certainly a part of this existence and, and, and the human body is something that, that is something of this existence, right? And the reason I bring that up is because, um, you know, I, 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 there are some healers that, that are more on the spiritual end, right? That have not gotten medical um, training um, <clears throat> and who I think in, especially in the psychedelic space tend to, to, to give psychedelics but, but don't know how to work so much with the body or, or, you know, if someone has a physical illness, can they still get a psychedelic, et cetera? Or if they're not eating right, you know, I have a colleague of mine who beautifully described once, you know, he's, a, he's also a psychiatrist, but he does functional psychiatry first, meaning he gets someone's genetics, their 23andMe, their entire lab history, makes sure, makes sure that that is all teed up before giving ketamine because he kind of describes it as like, you know, psychedelics can be sort of like a jet fuel to a car. But if the mechanism of the car isn't functioning properly, you can give that jet fuel, the car will run beautifully for a short time, but then you're going, you're going back to a broken machine or a, or a unhealthy machine. And so, and then, but you also have physicians, right? Who I think have done a lot of wonderful work, you know, is, you know, they've also, I think, done some contributing to the trauma, right? But, but, in the end, I mean, medicine has done some beautiful things, antibiotics, you know, and infectious disease is one area, vaccines that I think there's been beautiful work in medicine. But medicine and doctors don't tend to honor the spirit so much, or even the mind, you know, your, your average doctor that's not a psychiatrist is not really looking into the impact of the mind health on the body. And then you have traditional psychotherapy, right? Which in the Western world is of the Freudian lineage, right? 90, 90, 95% of, of psychotherapists out there are trained in the Freudian lineage, right? And, and that sort of split from Jung, you know, they split relatively early on after their initial friendship, but Jung was incredibly spiritual, right? Jung was, um, you know, Jung practiced yoga. Jung had lots of friends in the in Eastern, Eastern world, Eastern philosophies. Um, and so it's interesting because they split in, in this you know, Christian conservative culture that most of the Western world is based on really shunned Carl Jung for the most part. 
Interestingly, something I realized recently is that Carl Jung was a psychiatrist, whereas Freud was a neurologist. And I used, I used to remember Freud actually being a psychiatrist, but he wasn't, right? So Freud was much more biological. All that is to say, like what I'm mapping out now is sort of saying there's a spiritual level of healing. There's the body, which I think is represented by medicine and the mind level of healing, which is psychology um, and psychotherapy. And the spirit, I think, you know, psychedelics play a strong role in that, but it's certainly not the only level of, of spiritual healing. And so to me, like the healer of the future, and not only the future, the, the healers of the past honored all mind, body, spirit. And so, um, and I think there's, there's distinct levels of disunity or trauma that can hit all three levels, whether it's mind, body, spirit. So it's a little bit of my, my perspective on that. Mm, thank you. And that's a really beautiful um, picture of your own spiritual beliefs as well. And I wonder, were they as formed as that when you got into medicine and psychiatry or has that evolved over time? <laughs> my God. Um, I was to say, my God, no. Like I, so I was raised Jehovah's Witness. I'm not sure how familiar you guys are out there, but it's a very restrictive religion. Um, so by the time I was 15, I had left the church and certainly by the time I went to university at 18, I considered myself atheist agnostic. And that would have been true up until I was 33. I'm 40 now. Um, I would have, and that, so I did not have long hair. I did not have piercings, no jewelry. I was very, again, I believed in evolution and I thought, you know, I was going to be a doctor who was researching, you know, new antidepressants and giving drugs to people. Um, and also like I had a pretty significant, I'll show you this picture of me around that time. So. Oh, wow. Um, so we're, this is just an audio recording, but maybe we can post a little screenshot underneath yeah. or something. But yeah, but I mean, I, meaning like at that time I was like, this is not who I was today. So and at that point, you know, even though I wasn't Jehovah's Witness, the history of you know, drugs being evil and, and the work of the devil. And also I grew up in the eighties, which was a time of like the say no to drugs movement in the United States. And so I had not thought to take any psychedelics, you know, even up to seven years ago. And so for me, you know, I, um, that's all to say, no. So I, this is the last thing I ever thought I would be doing any of any of what I do today. But really, you know, it was part of the transition for me. You know, I got, I'd gotten to that at 32, I had gotten, you know, my MD and my PhD degrees from UCLA, from Oxford, and then I was training as a psychiatrist at Harvard. And I really hit like the second big low of my life where I was like, I've achieved all these external things. I went to the best universities. I'm faculty at Harvard, and I'm still really miserable. Um, and I was about to curse and I don't know if we're allowed to curse on the podcast, but like, I, I really just hit me as I'm like, I, what did I just do for the last 15 years? I went to school, I'm miserable. You know, should I drop out and go into business? But I was like, I'm too old to do that. So it really was really a, a time that was transformative to really look at my life, right? And, and I had realized that I had been living sort of a life of, of achieve, achieving things that were that I learned, right? Things that I thought would make me happy, but I wasn't really living life to, to how I wanted to live it. And so, yeah, it was really through look, taking a deep look in that and, you know, going through a deep depression and, and a time where I was very suicidal to where the first time I ever went to a psychotherapist, really. And soon after that, just synchronistically, a childhood friend of mine around that same time had decided to go back to school. Uh, to university in his 30s and he a friend of his had introduced him to DMT which is a smoked form of a psychedelic and so for months he was trying to convince me to even read about this and I was like no 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 and then finally he was like well they used to do research on this in the 50s and 60s and it used to be like anyway, and then he's like DMT was found in the brain and I'm like what are you talking about so then I like went to our literature search our medical literature search, and I found all these scientific papers by like people at the best institutions. And so I was finally like, oh, whoa, like, what is this all about? And, you know, it, it took me months until I actually tried a psychedelic after that. But um, just synchronistically also, I, I'm not sure if you've heard of MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, but synchronistically also within a couple months of that, I got introduced to, someone was like, oh, you should go like, meet this guy who lives down the street. He does research in psychedelics. And I'm like, okay. 
And that guy was Rick Doblin. He happened to like work. He lived two, two blocks from the hospital I was working at. So he was really like the first person I met in the psychedelic community. And he told me about the research studies and eventually he got me into the training for all this. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a long answer, but no, like that, th this was not, like I said, in any way, shape or form thinking it was gonna, psychedelics were gonna be part of my, or spirituality. We're gonna be part of my professional or personal life, uh, not too long ago. It's, it is quite an interesting trajectory for a psychiatrist, isn't it? It's usually you don't really read much about their personal lives. They're sort of the ones sitting on the chairs with the notebook and you don't really learn much behind the surface. So um, it's really it's really incredible and adds that extra layer of authenticity to what you have to offer and that you've had first-hand experience with it. I wonder... Um, how how you find sharing your experience changes perhaps the people that you're working with or changes the experience for them? Um, does it do you find like it adds another layer of depth? Are there challenges with that? Um, yeah, it's interesting because I certainly started off being a, a pretty pretty conservative in terms of sharing with with clients, but honestly, anyone like up until you know, the age where I started therapy, there was many, many things that I had kept secret from the world or, or from anyone really, because I was ashamed or I was scared or I had forgotten about them or I didn't think they were important. Um, so, and I, I, and my first therapist that I had for the first, you know, first three and a half years was a Freudian analyst. So he sat behind me, I was on a couch. I never like, you know, you know, I, I didn't look at the guys eyes for, you know, 99% of the time we were in the room, even though it probably totaled hundreds of hours because I was in therapy for four days a week for, for three and a half years. Um, but that was what was comfortable for me at the time, right? It was easier for me to share and go into things without looking someone in the eye in the beginning. But that eventually, you know, uh, transitioned into that not being what I wanted. And I wanted someone warmer. And so I ended up switching to a Carl Jung a trained analyst who was a, a woman who was much more warm and she gave me birthday cards and stuff. But if if, if someone had done that in the very beginning for me, it would have been very scary or off-putting. So all that's to say is that I've, I've definitely begun sharing more as I have felt more comfortable. There's certainly some things that I don't share. I guess the way I think about it as, as a practitioner is that there is a certain aspect of, you know, maybe a, a, to take a Freudian angle on it, like, you know, there is some trust or, or fantasy that we want to keep about the healer. There, that's, that's one approach, right? Because in, in some ways you can think of it as a reparenting, right? We're, we're helping people to see themselves and, and to clear the illusions of childhood when, when our parents failed or when the adults around us failed. So that's all to say that I'm, I'm pretty intentional in what I share. Um, that, that obviously it's, it's, a, it's a bit different now, especially because I, I do talk on a lot of podcasts and you know, I've been on, I was on a Netflix show this year. So there's more of me out there. Um, but I've also realized, I don't know, it's just, I also think that the types of clients that come to me are ones that have usually heard about the stuff that I'm sharing. And so it's meaning it's like, what I have found is actually, I've, I've never regretted it. And, and I've, I've been surprised. And I think that the clients that come to me nowadays are much more deeply connected to a bigger meaning on average. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're creatives. I love working with creatives and helping them sort of bring more gifts to the world. And so it's just, it's shifted the type of clients that, that reach out to me, but I do not, um, you know, there's some stuff that I've shared with clients that I, you know, haven't shared on a podcast even. It really just depends on who I'm working with. And, um, yeah, it's always a balance and I'm thinking about, you know, should I share this or not? So it, it's, it's, it's a balance, but most of the time I've found it, it's, it's very helpful to people just to, you know, just to be another human in a room with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've had this conversation on the podcast before how authenticity often offers authenticity to other people, gives them permission to, um, to show more of themselves when you do that too. Um, so going back to our beginning conversation about trauma and healing. So trauma is something that disconnects us from our core self or from our essential authentic self. So healing would be a movement towards that reconnection, I'm assuming. And feel free to add anything on top of that. It sounds like you have other modalities that you're using in your practice as well, but psychedelics is obviously one of the big, one of the big pathways to that reconnection. 
yeah, so I'd like to open up that conversation around around psychedelics and how you see their role because you know similarly I also grew up in the in the 80s and there was a lot of fear in my family around um, touching drugs especially psychedelics there were stories of um, how they will ruin your mind and how they will just turn you into a, a crazy loony with just one one trip and we were always as kids advised and feared into staying as far away from them as possible. Um, so I've also been on my own journey of, of redefining what they mean and, and what they actually have to offer in a healing sense. Thank you. Yeah, um, you know, I like to think of like, the, one of the ways I describe psychedelics, and, and the other thing is that, you know, right now we are talking about psychedelics or, you know, people say psychedelic assisted therapy. What, what people are starting to do, but really it hasn't really started, I think, at a at a higher level where it's going to unfold in the next five to 10 years, we're going to start seeing that the different psychedelics work very differently. Um, and they, you know, some might be better for some indications or some might be better for certain people or certain types of trauma than others. So that's, that's a caveat we could talk about later if you want. Um, but if I, if I think about psychedelics as a, as an umbrella category, you know, I, my favorite definition of a psychedelic is one, I think that, that Stan Groff, who's a, who's really the first psychedelic therapist or psychedelic psychiatrist, um, he, he, he's called them non-specific amplifiers of the unconscious. And that's my favorite definition, right? Some people get into, wait, it's an entheogen versus a psychedelic versus, blah, blah. but I mean, to me, it's just like, okay, well, we have what we take as consensus reality and we can take something that opens up the unconscious, whether, whether it's the unconscious of the mind, the unconscious of the body or the unconscious of the spirit, right? And, um, you know, and I, I think, you know, I like to explain that I think, you know, psychedelics for me, there's about four distinct uses, four or five distinct uses. You know, I think people can use them for healing, which is definitely what's, what's most in the news right now. You know, I also think people can use them for what I call human potential or creativity. You know, it's, it, whether it's creating new ideas, companies, or just art, artistic ex expression. Um, you can use them for recreation. You can use them for um, escape or abuse. Um, and I can't remember if there's four or five, usually there's four or five of most things. But what I'm saying is that like, I think as long as people are, are, are know why they're using it, it can be healing. Not, not, not just like, no, but people should be honest with themselves about why they're using it and how they're using it. Right. Cause I think there's a lot of examples out there of people using it for recreation or for escape or for Again, creativity. All of those are, I think, are legitimate uses. Even even you know, abuse is it, it's a, it's a, it's a use. But I would actually say it's a you know escape is what I would rather use, or a coping strategy. But um, so there's different. I think again, legitimate ways to use psychedelics. So when I think about their their use in healing, I think about their use of of uncovering, again, unconscious material. Again, whether it's memories, body sensations, or spiritual aspects of, of things like, you know, you mentioned transgenerational trauma or, or inherited trauma sort of stuff. And, you know, the different ones and at different doses will give us access to these different aspects of ourselves where I think they give us the opportunity to, to sort of bring them, you know, these different parts of us into unity, right? These different parts that have been split off because of trauma. Um, not to get too heavy on the jargon, but Carl Jung would call these complexes or people in the, in the internal family system style of therapy would call these different parts of ourselves. But, you know, because my view is when trauma happens, we end up splitting in like these different parts within ourselves and, and some become lovable or some become unlovable or we think some are bad, some are good. And so healing in a way is like bringing together all these different parts that we each have uncon unconsciously and bringing them into to, to consciousness and light. And... Um, so that, that's to say that, so that, that's the way I overall view psychedelics, that they give us this opportunity, they evoke these things that we normally suppress in culture or that we suppress with medications. Uh, but what I mean by that is, you know, most, so, so, so traditionally people will come to a therapist or a psychiatrist and say, I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling depressed, right? Or they're essentially saying, I'm feeling scared or I'm feeling sad and I don't want to feel this. 
And normally we would give them a medication if you're a psychiatrist, right? And if you look at the, the categories of our medications, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, antipsychotics, it's like, if you're feeling anything that we deem not normal, let's, let's quiet it, let's get rid of it. I don't wanna see it. And I think similar things that also suppress pain are things like alcohol, are things like opiates or heroin. Um, but I think our culture also suppresses, right? We can, we can suppress with, um, you know, keeping people inattentive with social media. We can suppress by keeping people in a fear state with news. And so culture as a whole has made, you know, certain emotions, namely three, sadness, fear, and shame. We think of them as sort of unacceptable, as weak, as not important. And so culture, again, culture, medications, et cetera, has suppressed these where psychedelics really do the opposite, right? They, they bring all these things to the surface. They evoke them so that we have the opportunity to actually work through them instead of just keeping them uh, kind of separated and out of consciousness. So do you think it's important that someone who's interested in bringing up some of these unconscious patterns or traumas or whatever may be lurking down there um, up to the surface through psychedelics, do you think it's important to have therapeutic assistance in that process? Um, I think that it's an important to have supportive, loving, empathic support. Um, I do not believe, I'm not a doctor who believes that, that the future of psychedelic therapy has to remain within medicine. I actually think quite the opposite. I think it would be a tragedy if it remains only within medicine. Um, you know, I think there's wonderful licensed uh, practitioners like myself and other therapists that do really, really beautiful work. There's also tons of practitioners with degrees and educations who have been, you know, who have done the training for psychedelics who I would never send a friend of mine to or a family member who I don't, meaning they just don't do good work. They don't understand the work. Um, they, you know, a lot of practitioners in the medical community are, are thinking of it like a pharmacologic treatment. They're not seeing it as a, as a, human connection kind of treatment. And so it's gonna take time to unfold. The same is true within the underground community, right? Of, of practitioners or lots of coaches are now, you know, giving psychedelics to, to people, lots of sound healers are doing it, you know, um, or you have retreats on ayahuasca, et cetera. And kind of similar thing to the medical practitioners. I think there are some wonderful underground therapists out there. And I think there are a lot of harmful ones out there also. So meaning the most important thing that I think is important is that, again, it could be a trusting, empathic, you know, loving, supportive experience, regardless of who the person is that, that's guiding you through it. Um, do, do I think that, you know, it's possible to do healing yourself with these? I do, actually. Um, I, I think that the chances of things going, I don't want to say wrong, but, but painful stuff coming up that isn't healed can then end up staying at the surface at the pain level and, and causing more suffering. Um, so I think that, you know, in many ways, I think that the, I think there is a lot of value to having someone who's highly trained, you know, and in, in both the mind, the body, the spirit. And this is where I was talking earlier about the, really the practitioner and the psychedelic practitioner in particular of the future should really understand mind, body, spirit, you know, know how to do body work, know how to do therapy, know how to handle, you know, non-ordinary states or spiritual experiences that come up. Um, you know, and, and that's why I think there is a role for, for high level training in psychedelics. You know, for me, you know, in the future, affordability is something we might may or may not talk about. But psychedelic treatment within medicine, the medical community is slated to be an incredibly expensive um, process, mostly because you, you've got one or two practitioners in the room who you're hiring for one person for a large number of hours. And the reason I bring that up is that, you know, for me as a, you know, a highly trained, smart person, like, I, I, I like to be challenged, meaning like to me, when I get someone who is like, has symptoms that like, are very new or unusual, or has just a backstory of, or, or you know, is connected to past lives, I get really excited about that, um, where, you know, you can think of it, it's, it's like any other job in some ways, where I can think of some things that are more bread and butter, like, um, uh, you know, your standard anxiety, standard depression. 
um, where, you know, where I think like a lot of things that people are suffering from can be healed within their own community, within perhaps some their, their colleagues or their loved ones. And so I think there's room for these, you know, people for, to use psychedelics on their own safely or with underground practitioners. And if you, you know, have the, the say more complex um, traumatic experiences that require more, then, you know, send those over to the medical community. But I really think that of like psychedelics really integrating into culture as a whole, not just in the medical community. Yeah, and often the people that um, I guess the most traumatized sectors of society are the ones that don't necessarily have the material um, means to be able to access highly trained therapists and professionals. So sometimes the only option is to either find the underground way or alternative means into to getting into it and I wonder if there's any suggestions you, that you have for safeguards for people that are um, going to take that route basically. Yeah I, I will also say though I actually don't think money equals ability to heal either like there, there's plenty of wealthy people out there that spend all sorts of money and have access to really bad practitioners um, uh, in or out of psychedelics. I've just heard so many stories of Again, because there aren't that many practitioners, and, and in some ways, if you I don't know, like I, I've sort of made some sort of correlation that that the higher the the income or the number in the bank account, and it's actually especially when you get to the billionaire level, it, it's it's strongly correlated with loneliness and, and lack of community. So I actually don't, and I think some you know some people who I've met at festivals or Burning Man who have never gone to school and don't have much money are actually some of the most healed people I've ever met, and and they're very connected. So I, I do I do think. Even though I brought up money and financial access, I actually don't think it necessarily buys access. Um, so yeah, in terms of, of then selecting whether it's a underground practitioner or an above ground practitioner, you know, I always tell people just to go with their gut. You know, I think your gut usually tells you whether to wait or whether to, to work with someone, you know? And so I think that's the number one is just what's what's the aura, what's the vibe that you're reading from someone. And if, and if the vibe says no, then, then listen to it. You know, it's, you know, right now also because I think psychedelic therapy is not that widely available, even in the underground community, people, you know, because of the news and stuff get very excited and want to try it and will often go with the first person they meet because it's it seems so rare, even though that you know, the experience or something about meeting the person didn't make sense. So I do get the, the number of clients that have reached out to me, especially during COVID, who have said, I've had a very bad experience. I feel psychotic or more depressed and suicidal because I work with this underground therapist has, has really increased and it, it's, 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 it's notable. So I'd say trusting your gut is number one. And I think asking lots of questions, asking the practitioner, you know, what are one or two examples of problems that have come up with someone that you've worked with and how did you deal with them? You know, because if, A, if you're not comfortable asking that question of someone that that's problematic, I think, to begin with, with that practitioner. Um, number two, if, if a practitioner says, what well, it's never happened, um, you know, I, I, would, I would walk away just because if, if any practitioner says they've never had a, a difficult situation with someone, I think either, A, they haven't done many they haven't guided many people or be they're they're not being honest so i yeah that's i think just what i'm saying is maybe just clear communication good connection and trust with the person you're going to work with and if someone has had either a bad practitioner experience or maybe taken themselves on a trip that has brought stuff up for them that they weren't ready to deal with how would you then um recommend going down that route of dealing with things that have come to the surface that are you know maybe have re-traumatized that person or just they can't quite integrate from that experience yeah i mean that that would be then seeking those same same traits that one would seek from a therapist right someone who's empathic um patient um can hold hold loving space, you know, wh wh wherever that comes from. Um, again, in the form of formal therapy or informal therapy, opening up to people. You know, if it's more physical uh, symptoms that are coming up, you know, looking into body work, holotropic breath work, other types of breath work. So, um, really, really depends on on the situation. But really, yeah, just just seeking a, a practitioner with again trust, knowledge, and empathy. And does it seem to be um, assured that 
if we're working towards healing that traumas are going to come up, that suppressed traumas are going to come up, is that always the way? Does there always have to be some sort of catharsis in that pathway to healing? I think so. I mean, because uh, catharsis, I, I, I like to use that word quite a bit. I, I, I do think that, you know, catharsis to me is, is sort of um, the release of the energy or the, the emotion that's been keeping that, that part that we're working on suppressed or protected, right? Like, I don't think that we split in different parts of ourselves or build these complexes or build these parts that we are, you know, ashamed of or don't like. We, we never do them to harm ourselves. You know, usually these patterns come from childhood, right? We usually split off parts of ourselves that feel unlovable or feel unlikable so that we don't suffer while it's happening as a child. So, but usually that part is since it's protecting us, it's thinking it's doing something helpful and good. And so since it's protecting us, it thinks it's protecting us from usually from sadness, fear, or shame. So usually it does take going through that shell, the illusion of sadness, fear, or shame to, to reconnect to the trust and the love that's underneath it. So I do think that there is some level of, um, yeah, needing to go to have a catharsis. I think how that looks and how intense that looks, whether it's crying, wailing, screaming um, can be on one end of the spectrum or shaking and moving, but it can also be a gentle process. You know, it, it doesn't have to be uh, physically or visually or vocally intense necessarily to be cathartic. Um, so, yeah, I guess one thing that is really um, an area of interest for me is intergenerational trauma. You know, this is something that's been talked about a lot in the field in recent years. Um, oh. And for me, what piques my interest is it feels like it's that missing piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, previously we've looked at all our individual issues and traumas and um, things that are holding us back to being the full expression of ourselves. But what's your experience and your thoughts on, on this intergenerational or collective trauma that seems to be playing out globally? Yeah, um, you know, I, you know, that I would, I would think of, you know, both on the kind of maybe spiritual, I mean, I guess, I don't know, in the end, like, I, I, I do um, like this model of mind, body, spirit as, as kind of distinct levels of healing and trauma or areas to be traumatized or separated. Um, in the end, they all connect together. Um, so the reason I bring that up is that, you know, I think there, there's different, I mean, there are genetics to back up, you know, and epigenetics to back up like a biological reason for, you know, potential intergenerational trauma. Um, but there's also, you know, spiritual level stuff. If we believe in reincarnation and, you know, in Buddhism, one form of Buddhism, you know, it's thought that the oldest child in a way kind of picks the parents before they, they the soul enters the, the body and that, you know, each subsequent sibling picks their older sibling as their main kind of uh, work to do in that lifetime, interpersonal work. So, you know, the, the, the reason I bring that up is that I, I, I do think that there's kind of different levels of, of healing um, for, for something like intergenerational trauma. I do think that, you know, psychedelics for the most part, I think don't work on the biology so much. Um, I, I do think that there's a, there's a distinction within that. Um, ayahuasca, I think, is one that, that I do think is a bit different, where it can be a very physical experience. And I ha you know, there are many stories about people healing you know, what, what's thought of as, as lifelong biological illness through, through ayahuasca. Um, so yeah, I didn't, you know, that, that's kind of a wide answer to say that, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential, yeah, depending on, on people's beliefs and uh, on, on, what's ailing them. And, and whatever the practitioner is also pre prepared to help people through. No, I don't know. It reminds me of this. There's this quote by, I think it's been attributed to Ram Das. I've never been able to, to find it directly linked to him, but, but there's, a, there's a saying that um, you, can, you can only get as high as your shaman has gotten, which, which is another way of saying that, you know, I think most the, the healers can really only take you as far as they've gone. So, you know, that's where, another place where I think of with the stronger psychedelics like ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT, NNDMT in a smoked form. If you've got a practitioner that that's really out there just giving a lot of people these medicines and is not doesn't know how to how to work with them at a deep level, you can open up some pretty large um, 
suppressed material that, that could end up not getting packed together nicely. So I think, and healed through. So I think that's, that's where, you know, to me, the, the people who can, can really work with spiritual level intergenerational stuff, I mean, I can, I can put them on one hand of, of everyone I know. So it really is something I think to take, you know, the, the level that we're opening ourselves up to um, with caution. Do you think it's something important that we start to look at as a collective and in the place that we're in with, um, you know, so much going on globally, so many pressures ecologically, environmentally, financially, politically, the list goes on. Um, do you feel like we're at a point where we need to start delving a little deeper in that sense um, and look at what's holding us back um, as, a, as a global collective of humans? Yeah, it's interesting in terms of need. I mean, I don't, I, I, I sort of am someone who feels that, you know, th this thing that we're in, this human experience, this world, this material world, it's, it's just something that's unfolding. I, I don't, I don't think that there's a, an end point or a goal um, that the entire collective is going to reach. You know, I, I spiritually believe that this is, this is just one, one of different, um, let's not go down too far down that rabbit hole but um but so so keeping it to your question is i do think that that there's a natural unfolding and there, i don't know there's there's a thing that i like to say that that i think psychedelics are making spirituality palatable to the western world you know where i think um you know because it's coming in through medicine unlike the 60s where there was this like big up up, up uptick in use of psychedelics and there was a large lots of protests that said, let's end the war in Vietnam, let's take down the government. It's kind of like the way I think about it is that, you know, whatever is happening collectively is a reflection of what's happening in the individual and community level stuff. You know, when I think about, you know, what was happening in the 60s, they were like, you, they were trying to almost like force feed the world LSD. And that to me, that was too threatening to a lot of people. You know, if I think of myself and my history with religion and Jehovah's Witnesses, if someone when I was 25 was like, take this LSD, that would have been terrifying. And so I think we need to, as, as people heal and are open to more things, we have to realize that other people, you know, we need to, to meet people where they are, right? And, and to guide people and to really realize that, 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 that this is a, patient, a process to be patient with, right? And so... I think naturally people are getting more connected to, to spirituality and, and bigger questions. You know, lots of people are reaching out for help with psychedelics saying, I want to be less depressed or less anxious. And the people who stick with the treatment eventually all that I've seen, almost all, end up asking themselves the bigger questions. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Um, how do I want to change my life? So it really leaves the realm of just feeling less depressed and less anxious for most, and it ends up bringing up the larger questions. So um, that's a way of saying, like, I don't know if there's a need. If there's a need, I think it's it, yeah, it'll it'll uh, it'll unfold as it's you know as as it's it's meant, I guess. I don't, I don't love the phrasing of that, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious of that rabbit hole, but um, we'll leave it there for now. Um, what do you think it is in psychedelics that helps to open us up to these questions and to give us meaning in the in the bigger context of life? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I, I sort of believe that, you know, we each have a soul, you know, or and I like I like to say that the heart, not not the physical heart, but the area around the heart or whatever we would call the fourth chakra is that. To me, my definition of the heart is the part of us that's in continuous meditation with spirit. By, by that, I mean that is always connected to that place of unity, of oneness that we come from and where we will go, right? But then the three expressions that I like to say is that our mind, our voice, our body, right? Or our thoughts, our words, our deeds can depart from spirit, right? It's not always in connection with, with spirit. And so you know, the way we are about the world, the way we express ourselves, the way we, again, either work or are with our friends, with our family, can either be in alignment with the heart or out of alignment. You know, I think society, culture, religion, our family traumas, etc., all impart all these illusions upon us of how we should be in the world. And so I think of the healing process with psychedelics as removing a lot of these illusions. And so ultimately, I think that, that it's the removal of these illusions of, of things that we should be doing that allow the clarity to then start saying, what do I want to be doing in this world? And I think that's when 
you know, the, the, I mean, spirituality even is a word, I don't love it, but it's this, this, it's this connection to, to again, our, a, a deeper meaning of, of, of what we want, not just whatever Instagram likes or a certain amount in our bank account or something. And if someone is wanting to walk down this pathway and perhaps for whatever reason, psychedelics isn't right for them, do you work with other modalities or do you have other suggestions that um, might help people to um, walk towards their own reconnection? I mean, I, I think just, yeah, I mean, whatever calls them, whatever I, I do, I'm a big believer in synchronicity. And I think that when, when again, we're, we, we have the intention to, to work, to realign ourselves to our hearts, to our purpose, that, that, that we attract the energy, the people, the situations that will help us along the line. So, um, so whether that's psychedelics or breath work or, you know, just connection to nature, some of the people who I think, you know, are some of the, you know, most, again, I hate saying most or least or any comparisons, but, but far along their path back to their truest self, would probably could would describe themselves some of them as atheist you know so I, I and they would not consider themselves spiritual so I you know are there some people who I don't know like you know a shopkeeper in some place in Italy at a wine shop that just knows what his purpose is and he is the wine man and whatever takes care of his family and never gives a second thought to to God or psychedelics could be further along his or her path than me you know I, I really think I don't think that that connection to purpose equals, you know, spirituality or belief in God or something. Like I think just just by, yeah, following our our kind of internal um, our internal sort of a um, yeah purpose or, or, or drives is, is really what what I think the the deeper healing is is really about. So um, that's to say, yeah, just just with be, live with intention and then just you know follow the synchronicities as they pop up and as our series is called authentic awakened action um you know finding that place in ourselves of of healing and connection and um fullness is one part of the journey and we're also interested then how that translates out into external action do you have any thoughts on how we move back out into this world from this place? I mean, I don't think healing is, some, is a journey that ever ends or is ever finished, but in a place where we're feeling in our fullness or integrity, um, how do we then move back out into the world and engage with it as it is? Yeah, and I, it's, a, it's a great way to, to think about it and ask. I, I mean, I do think that, that really, you know, the work is never done at the individual or the collective level, you know, but I think it's really just about, I don't know, I, I, I was a big reader of Carlos Castaneda in the, the Don Juan series in the last, you know, during quarantine especially. And so Don Juan, I don't, know, I, I don't remember the quote exactly, but he would say that all paths lead to nowhere. There's some paths that go through the bush or around the bush. Um, some paths have a heart and some don't, but all of them lead nowhere. And this is where the piece about synchronicity comes in is that, you know, whatever we feel called to do is to meet that from a place of love in the heart. You know, it doesn't have to be that everyone is a public speaker or everyone publishes books or everyone, you know, I, I think if, if one can even just meet a partner and raise children in the most loving way possible, I mean, that's a big of, as that's as important as a contribution as, you know, Rick Doblin who introduced psychedelics and, you know, millions of people will have this healing experience, you know, earlier because of him, you know, I don't think that there's, there's a quantification of, you know, what's better or worse in terms of contribution, you know, meaning I think that, that whatever people are called to do and the changes that they're, you know, wanting to make in their personal life or professional life, they should just follow that. And I think, you know, ultimately what we see collectively at the level of government our elected officials, et cetera, is, is essentially it's an accumulation of all of these small decisions and connections, you know, um, you know, that, that, that we observe right now in society. Beautiful. Is there anything else that you feel like talking to? Is there, what's alive for you and your work at the moment? What are you seeing coming through in this quite unique year of 2020? Um, are there particular trends that you're noticing, themes that seem to be surfacing for people? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. For me, like at the at the personal level, I this is just a time for me. I think you know, I, I just realized it's it's a time for me to take action on what I have sensed has been more you know, or take more action on my purpose, which is to educate the public and educate practitioners about healing. You know, and and a lot of that tends to be I speak right now on psychedelics, but I really do just see psychedelics as a tool, and I, I do think it's a tool that can. One can say that any major religion was was actually some form of a collective tool that was presented that that would bring healing along, right? If, if anything, we've seen that most tools that have come along, whether we call that Islam or Christianity or whatever, have, have not been complete, right? And, and we would potentially, some people would call them failures, right? I, I actually think that psychedelics have that same exact potential, you know, I, I, and, I, and be, because I do believe that the work is never done, you know, especially as, as larger companies are coming up, going public, you know, raising millions, if not bill, becoming billion dollar companies around psychedelics, you know, I, there, there is a lot of like, you know, I, I don't think the optimism behind psychedelics is um, unfounded, but I do think that, that some people look at them to be more than tools. You know, they, they think that it's going to be some sort of savior. And I, and I don't think that that's the case. You know, and I think that, that, that you know, people really look to, for saviors. You know, one of the things that we started talking about but haven't talked about too much is our election in the United States. You know, there, there's some thought that, oh, if we put a certain person in office, you know, this person is gonna fix a lot of my problems. And, and I'm, I'm not that optimistic about either person being in office. You know, I, I, thinking back to my life, I don't know if my life has, on a day-to-day -day has been changed ever, whether there was a Democrat or Republican in, in office. You know, so I think that the most exciting thing that I feel from 2020 is, is um, the people I work with and a lot of the people I know who have been intentional about taking the experiences of quarantine um, as opportunities to heal is that most of those people are then finding a deeper connection to their purpose. And I think that, um, again, whatever that is, small scale or large scale. So to me, that's what's most exciting is that I think people are starting to, to to rely less on a savior that's going to come along to, to make our life good and they're looking more within. Yeah, I'm into that. Um, would you like to share a bit more about um, your work and if people are interested to learn more about you and what you have to offer? Sure, I mean, yeah, and I mean, my, my main, my really only social media is, is my Instagram account. So if people want to follow me there, it's will.cu.md. Will yeah, that, that's really it for now. I'm like in the process of writing a book proposal or, you know, I, on a few times this year, I've, I've taught an online class for psychedelics for clinicians. Um, but yeah, that I really, for, for now, I've been announcing or, or share most of my stuff on Instagram. So that's about it. Thank you for your listening ears and beating hearts. For more info on the Human Potential series and the speakers we have lined up, visit earthbeatfestival.com. We appreciate your support, donations, reviews, and feedback. Hanui, much love. Kia tō te rangimārie, ki rungi i ngā iwi o te ao. Let peace reign on all the people of the world.